I'm Cutter Calloway, and today we're breaking the marriage idol with Rachel Held Evans. Trust behind a sordid garden, smother manipulated honey from rose. Rachel is a well known author and speaker, and always has something interesting to say about the subculture of evangelicalism. Shake your feet while you sing and fit all your dreams. I told you about this, but I, I invited you on um, because, you know, I've been keeping track of your writing uh, of the last few years, so you've got. Um, a lot of people probably know already a year of biblical womanhood, um, searching for Sunday, um, and now coming out uh, the a, a sort of a, another birth of yours uh, is your next book, uh, inspired subtitle "Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again." Um, and and as we were act- interacting earlier, I'd I'd said my sort of take on your writing is that you're really pressing the question of not just what does the Bible mean, um, but how does it mean? How How is it that it sort of takes up root in our imagination and shapes our lives in some way? And I work at a seminary, and so it seems like the obvious thing for me to have done, and if I'm asking people like, what does the Bible say about marriage and sexuality and singleness, um, was to go to like Bible experts. But I thought when I saw that your book was coming out specifically on biblical interpretation, I really wanted to talk to you because as, as you say, actually in the, in the forward of your book, um, this is a quote from you, I, being you, Tackle this subject not as a scholar, but as a storyteller and literature lover who believes understanding the genre of a given text is the first step in engaging it in a meaningful way. So my first, I have, I have two sort of opening questions for you, and they're both related. Um, one has to do with the Bible, and the other has to do with, quote unquote, a biblical marriage. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But <laughs> that's your, and that's your territory now, man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. You've got the book on that now. I know, but you see, I want you to speak into it. Tell me, tell me what I should be saying. Um, but really, I'd like, as a storyteller and as a person concerned about how the Bible as story shapes our lives, I, it'd be interesting to hear what was that prevailing story about the Bible that you inherited from your community growing up? Um, what, what's that story people told, not necessarily the stories of the Bible, but what's the story they told about what the Bible meant and why it should matter for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up, you know, conservative, evangelical. And so I grew up knowing the Bible backwards and forwards. You know, I memorized lengthy portions of the book of Romans before I was even 11 years old. <laughs> and, you know, I was president of the Bible club in high school. Mm. You know, clearly I was the coolest kid in school. Um, but the message, you know, I received about the Bible was, you know, at first as a child, it was just, you know, here, here are some great stories and, uh, fall in love with these stories. And I did. Uh, but as I grew older, you know, as became a young adult and a teenager and young adult, you know, the narrative became the Bible is, um, you know, this is the inerrant, infallible, unchangeable word of God. And it is always under assault. (laughs) You know, it is Mm, the world wants to destroy the Bible and discredit it. And um, the world says that the Bible is inconsistent. And the world says that the Bible isn't historically and scientifically accurate. And so I kind of saw the Bible as, you know, my charge to defend. Um, That was definitely the the prevailing narrative. Hmm. And then, of course, when I as I matured and became a young adult and began engaging the Bible uh, a little more seriously, um, I began asking a lot of those questions for myself and 
found for myself that, wait a minute, this doesn't seem consistent. Wait a minute, this doesn't read like history or science. Wait a minute. And Mm. so all the things I'd been taught to defend the Bible against started coming from me. And that was scary and unnerving, but ultimately, uh, you know, led me to a a place where I think I'm engaging the Bible more for what it is than what I want it to be. And it certainly doesn't strike me as something in need of constant defense. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, 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 my actually next project I've um, working on has to do with atheism and it's really interesting uh, the amount of specifically evangelicals that are, some would say deconverting. I would just say converting, um, uh, away mm. from sort of evangelicalism. And so often you hear this narrative of one of the sort of touchstones for that uh, development, that journey is, I went and actually read the Bible right? and that was the watershed moment that I became an atheist. And I'm like, wow, yeah. wait, I, you know, so it's so interesting because, you know, I too grew up evangelical, um, grew up in a, in a pretty conservative borderline fundamentalist. I don't know if they would call it that um, context. I think I inherited some of those same things, but for me anyway, and I, I, I sense this about you. So tell me if this is right or wrong, but for me, I always just, I just questioned everything from the get go. Um, and, and that helped me a lot. I think when I then sort of, as I matured and and did, you know, started reading more and asking different questions. Um, but for my story, it never seemed unnatural to like read it and say, oh, this doesn't make any sense. You know, Hey pastor, what about X, Y, or Z? Um, that was just my personality. Is, Is that you, have you always been a question asker or was there some moment that, that you sort of had an awakening and you started asking those questions of the text? Yeah, I was always a questioner to a degree. I'm also like, I'm a three on the Enneagram, if you're into that. Mm. So I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. kind of a performer, <laughs> which means, uh, yeah. So I, I, I learned how to bury a lot of those questions deep, 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 uh, deep, because yeah. that was not going to do me any favors as the president of the sure. Bible club asking <laughs> you know, serious questions about the Bible. But yeah. I mean, I do remember as a child, one of the first questions I had was, if God is a good and loving God, then why did God drown all of those animals in the great flood when it wasn't their fault that people were sinful? You know, not to mention that God also destroyed all of humankind in that story, which is a a little bit troubling as well. But I was worried about the elephants who had nothing to Mm -hmm, do with mm -hmm. it. Uh, You know, that was one of the first questions I had, but I was fortunate. I was raised, even though I was raised in kind of a pretty conservative borderline fundamentalist culture, like kind of like you, my home was a place of uh, refuge mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. grace. Yeah. And we were allowed to ask questions and to, yeah. um, to doubt and to debate and to discuss yeah. things. And so there I could kind of let loose and be like, what's this about? What's that about? Um, and my dad had a seminary education, so I just assumed he had all of the answers, but he was always really <laughs> gracious and humble in how he engaged me in these questions. And uh, oh, make no mistake, we do. We yeah, do right. have all the answers, yes. <laughs> we have a master's of divinity, doesn't make that's you right, a master that's right. of divinity. But um, oh, yeah, so, so that helped, you know, that I was able to kind of release it there and ask the questions hmm. there. And I think that gave me a healthier posture towards the Bible, but that was certainly not something I was going to divulge to, you know, the the people in my conservative Christian college. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I, I was formerly a pastor um, and I I look back on that time with sort of winsomeness and and a a sense of failure. And I think (laughs) it's kind of what you're describing. Like I realized at one point that the expectation was I was supposed to be the president of the Bible club. 
right, right? Or, or or the morality police <laughs> and that's and, like your job you're getting paid at that exactly. point and, and i thought the whole time when i went into pastoral ministry that my job was actually to bring this sort of wild unteamly book in front of a group of people and say what in the world mm-hmm. is going on here like what why mm-hmm. is this you know what kind of god do we serve and what is you know um and and i realized that didn't play well <laughs> with my audience um, and 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 it really is a, a challenge to sort of meet those public expectations with uh, sort of private, uh, you know, murmurings of the heart. And yet you have the sort of home context, very similar to mine. I mean, my parents were were really open to whatever. And yet I have this distinct narrative that I got from all these other places. And that's, I think, the segue question for me and to you is when it comes then to, and this is the connecting point between sort of your upcoming book and uh, my upcoming book, almost the same weeks they release, but we both inherited these these larger narratives, right? That I had to, I, I sent a, a manuscript early to my mom because I said, mom, I'm writing this book. I need you to know I'm not blaming you. Because <laughs> um, right. I know yeah. as a mom, she's going to think, oh, it's all my fault. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I said, no, no, there's this whole sort of um, uh, this norm that exists that is powerful. And it's often not even stated, but it came in all these other places that I don't know if my parents even knew of. So I wonder if you could, if it, and maybe it was in the home, but maybe it sounds like more outside of it. How would you describe that story you received about what the Bible said about marriage then? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I loved I loved reading your book about this because it so resonated exactly with my experience. It was creepy, like right down to all the examples, all the Eldridge stuff, all the, mm. the, the folks you quote and the, the, the cultural influences as well as the evangelical cultural influences. It was to a T my experience as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that, I mean, the message I always received and as a woman uh, was that, you know, the goal is to meet a good Christian boy. Uh, my mom even always said, you know, what you need to do when you grow up is go to a Christian college and marry a Christian boy. So, you know, that was kind of the aim was to get married to somebody who was also a Christian. And as a woman, I was, you know, of course, always told that the Bible uh, taught that women should be submissive to their husbands and that the husband should make the most money and the husband should be the leader, the spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. So I was always looking for somebody who, knew more about the Bible than I did, (laughs) which was a challenge being the president of the Bible club. And, (laughs) you know, um, yes, the the goal was to, to meet somebody and marry somebody and they would be a good Christian and I would follow their lead and be a good submissive wife. And that's part of that turned out to be true. (laughs) Yeah. I married a really fine person who was a Christian. Um, but you know, we didn't end up with the, the kind of marriage mm-hmm. that people told us we should have where one person is the breadwinner and one person stays home mm-hmm. or, uh, where one person is the spiritual leader and the other person is a follower. We kind of, we had a much more, a, a relationship that's just more characterized by mutuality, uh, mutual respect, mutual submission, mutual service, that sort of thing. Um, so that's where we. So you're saying it's an actual marriage. Yeah, yeah just kind of worked out better that way. And it wasn't like we sat down one day yeah. and we were like, we are shifting from complementarianism to egalitarianism. Uh, it just kind of happened, mm-hmm. you know, just like that was where we were healthiest when we were just mm-hmm, communicating mm-hmm. like two normal people instead of trying to constantly balance some sort of power around, you know, it just, it worked yeah. just way more practical. And our faiths have changed a lot too, you know, like 
Uh, we've both been through seasons of significant doubt and questioning. Um, you know, my husband is, is even more of a skeptic, I would say, than I am and hmm. will probably count himself probably more of an agnostic to a degree. So, you know, hmm. and we've weathered all that together, per, I think, precisely because yeah. we didn't hang on to those expectations too tightly. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, you know, <laughs> I have a number of, of single friends who are um, closer to my age. And I think you and I, I, I won't out you in your age, um, <clears throat> but I think you and I are about the same demographic. You struck me as perhaps a bit younger in the book, just a little than, bit. Than you or than, than my actual age? Um, I th- <laughs> I th- I, well, I will happily say when I'm born, and then you can say if I'm slightly older or younger. Okay. Do you want me to do that? Sure. I, I was born in 1979. Oh, you're a little older than me. So yeah, you're just I thought that I was a, hip. Yeah. You're that hip yeah. and relevant. You like know you're what? Totally up I, on all the new millennial stuff. Yeah, I know what the kids say <laughs> and how they talk. No, no, uh, no. But but I mean, to be honest, I it's amazing to me the the transformation. I mean, just people that are a couple years younger than me, how differently they've experienced the world and relationships. Mm, and I mean, true. like, I look at oh, I look at what is the uh, what is the thing with Tinder, and I'm just like, I wouldn't. I would not survive. Can you imagine I, dating right now? Oh no, my god! No, no. I look I'm, at my friends and I'm just like, oh no, is, I couldn't do nuts. it. <laughs> so I have so I have a number of of single friends that are in in my sort of demographic um, here in LA, and 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 like hearing their encounters, their experiences is one thing, but then those who are Christian friends of mine and mm. have sort of I don't know why it is, but it's mostly the male Christian single friends that I've got have bought into this. Um, sort of, uh, I don't know, masculine sort of Christianity and notion of marriage and, and mm. uh, e- you know, the, all of the trappings of, of egalitarianism, or I'm, I'm sorry, complementarianism. And I'll hear them go back and forth. And there's one group that they're all roommates, and they talk about how they're going to handle this power differential in their marriages, right? <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, and they talk to me like, what are you guys even talking about? And they're like, well, you know, like when a decision has to be made, who, where does the buck stop? And I'm like, what? theoretical weird decision are you even talking about yeah, and i was like always ask about yeah, the yeah. big theoretical decision yeah. never encountered that I, I know me either and i'm like by the time you get there your marriage has failed like <laughs> you have way bigger problems than i'm just like this is just you're just making stuff up and and i was like and that's to say nothing of the fact that i am a terrible checkbook balancer like i desperately <laughs> need my wife to manage the money and yet i think there are plenty of people that would hear that from me and think I'm sort of like abdicating some responsibility because I don't, I'm not the principal budget manager in our, you know, like how right. silly is that to me? It's so anyway. exhausting is what it is too. Oh, like, yeah. like fundamentalism yeah. of any kind like that is just exhausting because yeah. you try so hard to contort into all these roles and, and follow all of these rules, whether or not they fit you or not yeah. as people, because you're all set up to marry a man or yep. a woman, you yep. know, like you don't marry a man or a woman, you marry Dan or you yeah. marry what's your yeah. wife's name. Yeah. Uh, Jessica, 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 you marry Jessica. You don't marry a woman, you know, uh, <laughs> like, I know. And, and yet they set up all of these expectations around stereotypes and, and misunderstandings of scripture. And, and when people can't fit, it's, it's, it's hard. It's exhausting. And, and most of us just give up and find ourselves happier. <laughs> it's true. Um, and it, it sort of gets to uh, something that I would say is probably one of your, uh, uh, pet peeves. It's one of mine as well. Um, <laughs> and that is when we use the, the adjective biblical, 
That drives me nuts. Oh yeah, and, and so I've been I've been thinking back, and and maybe I don't you know if you how closely you read some of the portions um, that I wrote because I waffle a little bit because I I part of at least my book and as I'm hearing you and your book too, there's a sense in which we want to say there is something that is a sort of a biblical conception of the world or, or biblically faithful or there's some way yeah. to interact with it, but at the same time to say a biblical man or a biblical woman or biblical marriage is such a, uh, a red herring or a misdirection. So I wonder if you could talk about that because the other side of it is you, you mentioned one uh, story that's very relevant, but you know, now we have people that are, you know, doing mental gymnastics to say, Oh, certain politicians and their history of, of sexual assault is okay because King David was did something similar <laughs> biblical manhood man. biblical yeah. man and i'm like what is happening here right so i want to i want to be able to this is just me um leave room to point out that and say no actually that is unbiblical it's not just unbiblical it's like sub-biblical it's it's counter to everything that we would say is quote-unquote biblical so i don't know how you would talk about that what what how should we draw the distinctions between what we don't want to do with this biblical womanhood or biblical manhood but then still allow for that thing where we call out really a perversion of of how the 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 historic tradition has understood um these sort of things yeah yeah well i really like what you did with that in your book when you talk about the Bible informing how we you view the world and looking at the Bible as including things that are like descriptive mm-hmm. as well as things that are prescriptive and then metaphors like mm-hmm. your third one. Mm-hmm. I think I found that very helpful, you know, in understanding and explaining to folks that, you know, just because there's a story in the Bible doesn't mean that that story is prescriptive, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we all kind of know. Yeah. I mean, most people kind of grasp that basic concept, but they haven't really sat down to think about, um, you know, what passages that might apply to and and what they might not. I mean, I think this is why so much of my book, I focus on genre, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think genre helps us understand whether we're looking at something that we should consider prescriptive or descriptive or a metaphor. Um, And actually, when you go to scripture, since most of it is story, and most of it, including the epistles, are rooted in the context of a story, uh, and all of it is rooted mm-hmm. in the grand story of, uh, you know, God redeeming the world through Jesus Christ, um, that it's it's really hard to pick anything out of there and say that, well, this is a rule yeah. that applies to all people at all times yeah. and all places. Yeah. I do think that Jesus offers some clarifying point here. You know, when he was asked by the president of the Bible club, (laughs) a leader in the religious community, an expert in the law. What's the most important Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. part of the law? Jesus, who typically, you know, I wouldn't say he evaded answering questions, but he liked to answer questions with other questions or with a story. He answers very directly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets, Mm -hmm. all of scripture as they knew it hang on those two commands. And so I feel like that's kind of our interpretive grid. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we're coming to the Bible, we want to be looking for how does this help us love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how does this help us love our neighbors as ourselves? Um, That's kind of the uh, having something of a, I guess they sometimes call it a Christocentric hermeneutic. But as Christians, I do think Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of scripture. So if we want to know what scripture looks like 
being in the world, uh, moving around, eating and drinking and uh, loving and, and living and dying and rising again. It looks like Jesus. So, yeah. So I, I do think that we can, I like that you are trying to kind of strike that. Um, it's not even really a balance, but take that posture that, um, you know, just because the phrase biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and biblical marriage can be super reductive mm-hmm. in the sense that they take, you know, thousands of years of writings in a variety of different <laughs> cultures and a variety of yeah. different genres from a variety of different authors and render them down to an adjective that is indeed quite yeah. productive. That's not saying that the Bible doesn't inform yeah. how we see marriage and how we see uh, manhood and womanhood, whatever those, and those can be really squishy concepts and, and often unhelpful, but how we see, I like how you do this in your book. You talk about personhood. How do we see one another as people and one another as neighbors? The Bible definitely informs that, um, but it can very rarely be reduced down to a list of rules or a list of roles. Man. And and when we do it, I was just thinking as you're talking there, that it, that in particular reductions, um, really are most prone to political co-opting more than anything else, right? I mean, (laughs) you can't, you can't, it's hard to co-opt. I mean, you can, but it's really hard to co-opt a a dense, thick narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's contextual and that um, (laughs) has, has lends itself to different interpretations. Um, But you can co-opt a, a sort of aphorism, right? Um, A 140 character, and I'm guilty of this as well, but 140 character witty sort of something that sums it all up. Um, yeah, you know, I, I just want to call you out because I was trying not to use things, use terms like Christocentric hermeneutic, um, <laughs> but you've done it. So there we go. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I, what I love about what you're saying there is, um, that in part, Jesus calls us to, to, to really decenter our notion of how we read scripture. Um, and, and my girl, all girls, um, all younger now fans of Matilda, the musical, do you know this musical? Oh yes. Um, That's great. yeah. And so they, they've been, uh, recently, uh, singing over and over this, the, I think the main, uh, song. Um, but there's this line that I caught and I said, Hey, wait, say that again. And the, and in there it's, it, it goes something like, just because I find myself in this story doesn't mean that everything is written for me. And oh yeah, and I'm like, whoa! What did you kids just say? And so I, I went and jotted it down. It was just last week that I heard it, and it reminded me a lot of, of as I was reading your work, because um, I think you mentioned there's a friend of yours. Um, I'm not sure who it is that that basically says, you know, the Bible sweeps us up into a story in which we're not the central character. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's Curl and Richter. She's a an Episcopal priest friend of mine. Well, I just like how she put that. Although the Matilda seems to have said it even better. Well, yeah, that's you know, I'm like, whoa, whoa, this is this is really deep <laughs> theological stuff. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a, such a healthy practice to think about as we go into the art of reading scripture, of saying how does this, how should it inform us? Because as modern people, we're so prone to assume that all these things are for me, you know, like every, whether it's a Broadway play or a movie we see or a song, like, oh, this is my song, right? So in your sort of, as you were thinking about writing this is, are there some, what are maybe like some best practices that that you found that are helpful in allowing us to read the Bible in that decentering way? What what can we do to make sure it's it's sort of strange to us in a way that doesn't allow us to kind of co-opt it in that way? Yeah. Oh, I mean, and that's the, really the task of hermeneutics too, you know? 
Uh, I mean, I'm often charged, like people accuse me of, by saying like, well, you're just going to the Bible looking to, you know, affirm what you already believe, uh, which aren't we all kind yeah. of, and <laughs> yeah. doesn't Jesus disrupt that every yeah. single time, yeah. right? Like I would love to believe that I don't have to love my enemies, mm-hmm. you know, and I would love to believe that blessings are for the rich and, and, and not for the poor. So, I mean, you know, Jesus kind of, takes care of a lot of this <laughs> just yeah. if we spend any time in the gospels like what, going to the bible looking for affirmation is not not going to end well for you um but yeah i mean so as far as practices i think as we approach the bible and kind of decentering ourselves as much as we can um, i mean a lot of folks like to say you know the bible was written for us but not to us hmm. so the more we can understand about the original people to receive scripture in the context in which it was written and assembled, I think the better. Uh, and that means, you know, that means that, you know, Genesis one isn't actually really about settling disputes about textbooks in a Texas classroom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's actually about a lot more than that. And it's, it has a lot more to do with where Israel is, uh, the people of Israel were situated in uh, Babylonian captivity. I mean, that gets kind of that was the goal with the book is to try and make that interesting, oh, <laughs> that yeah, fact, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. you can talk, I'm sure in seminary, y'all have talked a lot about the Babylonian exile <laughs> and how yes. you know, it shaped so much of what the Bible is uh, and how it came to mm-hmm. be and why it reads the way it does. Yeah. Like so much of that has to do with the fact that it was written and assembled largely by people who were living in exile, yeah. whose temple had been destroyed, who uh, weren't really sure if God had abandoned them. Yeah. And it just, it makes so much sense yeah. of, of scripture to read it in that context. So, you know, my goal with the book was to try and make that interesting for people hmm. by telling stories uh-huh. and working in a little bit of fiction and poetry and uh, even a short screenplay, yeah. um, you know, ways of kind of engaging that or those original contexts. So understanding, you know, where these stories mm. came from and who they were first written for can help us. And it certainly decenters us yeah. uh, in the reading process. And then secondly, the, probably one of the most important things, I think, like the most important practices to develop when approaching scripture is to simply read it and, and talk about it and engage it with people who think about it differently than you do, Uh, particularly people who come from, uh, you know, more marginalized communities. Um, so some of the biggest influences on this particular book for me were, uh, engaging in womanist interpretations Mm, of the text because, uh, you know, black women scholars read the story of Hagar, Mm -hmm. for instance, in a completely different way than I do because they see her and they see an African woman who was enslaved, Mm -hmm. Uh, who is the only person in all of scripture to dare to name yeah, God. I, I mean, it's, I yeah, well, it's, it's, and I picked that up from womanists. I never would have picked that up myself. And so being very deliberate about engaging in the interpretations of people who aren't like you, yeah. uh, people coming from different traditions. Another big influence on me was just reading Midrashic interpretations mm-hmm, of scripture. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, I think the Jewish posture towards scripture can be a lot healthier than the evangelical <laughs> posture. That's a whole other, whole other conversation, yeah. but their posture towards the Bible is a lot more like there's a contradiction. Let's talk about that. You know, it's yeah. not like this fear. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. So I would just say like understanding who the scripture was, you know, originally written for and the context from which it emerged and 
know, who were these letters for and why were they circulating around and what were these, you know, different mm. uh, communities like understanding that. And then also reading it with people who might pull something different out yeah. than you do. That's a great way to yeah. kind of decenter your own uh, narrative. Yeah. Um, and yet at the same time, I still believe that we are each one of us as individuals caught up in this yeah. great story. Yeah. So it is also for us. Yeah. And that's what's beautiful and kind of magical yeah. about the Bible is it still to this day, even when I approach it with all my skepticism mm. engaged and all my questions and doubts and my feminism is just <laughs> roaring. Like I still find stories and moments and jewels in there that it's like, this is inspired. Yeah. You know, this is this, there's something special about wow, this. That's good. Yeah. I, uh, I think my, I, I really love the, the Hagar part and then also the, uh, the choose your own adventure, uh, that you, uh, you drop. Well, you are a pastor, so you right, get that, right, like right. <laughs> introverting out. Well, you know, I, so the, the, the book that, that I write and I, I wrote it for the first time, um, kind of in community. Um, mm. and so I, I honestly never wanted to write a book about, marriage. I wasn't just all these conversations started cropping up, um, with a number of colleagues and friends and students and whatnot. And so the way I wrote my book was basically, I got a round table of folks. Now I was at Fuller. So these are all MDiv grads. Um, so they all did master divinity. Um, but it was this really fun, like editorial board. And most of them ended up writing the, the excerpts, like the, the vignettes that go in. Yeah. Which parts. are so great for decentering your, oh, your yeah. experience and um, like making sure other people's stories get told. <laughs> well, and so I, I learned, I mean, I learned so much. I mean, the book itself is so different because of that. Hmm. Um, and, and I was trying to be intentional about kind of collecting these voices and saying, I, I just can't. I have to acknowledge at some point I can't see the biblical text and hear it and understand it um, without my sort of perspective, right? I, I just can't do it, and so I need to be enlarged and broadened and, and et cetera by by others. And yes, and hearing somebody like you, like a dude, a white dude who has a <laughs> seminary degree, like say that is so encouraging. Well, yeah, <laughs> a lot of times people are like, "Oh, well, black women are doing contextual theology," yeah. as if like you doing theology at a seminary in the United States of America as a white man are not also in a context. Yeah, like, I, like <laughs> well, I'm doing real theology, and all of you right. others are doing <laughs> something else. <laughs> it's like, oh. right. All right. It's refreshing to hear that. Well, and I appreciate anybody who has that posture. Well, it's good to hear because I, I mean, honestly, as you know, let me list down my identity markers as a, you know, a white male cisgendered, uh, what, what else would it be? Uh, you're straight, right? straight. Thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to think of all the things. That I, so with all those things, like I, I am literally the man. Um, right. if, if I had a few more dollars to my name, I would, I would really be it. But, um, so that's the one Which thing. I know, you know. Like sometimes y'all get like constant, like negativity and I hope yeah. you, well, you know, that, it's, you know, I, I married somebody very much like you. So I obviously don't have a problem with all white men. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, I think part of sort of the emerging conversation right now is, is what is our role and how do we, how do we, mm. uh, steward the privilege that we've been given, um, while creating space, but not thinking like it's up to me to create, you know, it's, it is a sort of yes. awkward, but, um, I think that, as you just said, I think one of the things that if anything I can do is simply just say it over and over that I can't, I don't have a total picture on the world and, yeah. and let's just start there. And, 
And so part of what I also want to do in the book, and <laughs> I think in prior correspondence with you, I had said I, I was probably naive or didn't fail in this. Um, in terms of the people that will or won't accept either my read or even my approach to, to writing this, um, you've said a lot of great things about the book. Thank you. Um, but <laughs> I wonder if you could <laughs> say, um, if you feel okay about it, um, saying something that you kind of walked away going, uh, I'm not so sure. Or, you know, I've got a slightly different perspective that really could help Cutter see differently. Um, even if it's just to consider for a moment um, that perhaps I haven't seen or didn't consider, what do you have one or two of those things that, that you... Wow, nobody ever asked that. Like, that's... Um, yeah, let me just say, like, I, I do appreciate just, just your overall posture of humility and, like, just understanding that, you know, you two are reading the Bible from a context. Like, none of us are engaging Scripture objectively. It just can't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen. And that's, we can be afraid of that and freak out about it and feel uh, like we need to try and correct that. Or we can kind of embrace it and be like, that means there's more to learn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's always more to learn. To me, that's a, a much more rich view of the Bible is that it's got so much more to give precisely because I haven't mastered it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but as far as, I mean, I think that probably the only, the place where you and I would perhaps diverge a bit, um, and this is based on uh, a pretty recent reading of your book and I haven't really had the chance to to really dig into all your footnotes sure. and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think you and I probably would have some disagreements about sexuality, hmm. uh, particularly in uh, for LGBTQ hmm. people. And so I, I love that you included the stories of other people. I think that was one of the best parts of the book. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel like a lot of times uh, folks who are gay or uh, lesbian or, uh, you feature a person who's chosen celibacy, uh, and that's kind of presented as the option. And I'm just, I mean, I've been very vocal about this. So it's not something sure. I'm shy about, but I'm like fully affirming, yeah, yeah. Uh, same sex relationships and marriages. And so I would have liked to have seen mm -hmm. them included in, uh, in the story, not just as, uh, you know, folks who would need to pursue celibacy sure. because I don't think that they are, you know, I think celibacy is a really special and important call. And I think marriage is a really special and important call. And I just, the difference is I just believe that's open to uh, people who are gay as yeah. well as um, people who are straight. So, but that's like, you know, that's kind of something that a lot of Christians disagree about. Yeah. So it's not really a big surprise oh, yeah, yeah. That, that that might be a place where we would bump into some differences. Um, but I'm not one of those people who's like, therefore, sure, sure. I will not associate with you in any way. <laughs> yes. You know, well, like I get that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I had a, a more conservative view on these sort of things. So, you know, I can be gracious. <laughs> if you were going to say uh, the one or two things It'd be interesting to hear you say both the good and the bad, if you could. Yeah. Of what was what was in your mind the sort of most pernicious thing about how the Bible was used to talk about singleness and sexuality and marriage in that mm. subculture? And then was there anything good? Was there anything that we would look back and go, you know, that was something that was helpful that I think we should kind of embrace still? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah. Looking back, I think... It's certainly a lot of the messages from the quote unquote purity culture, particularly the whole like everybody's spit in a cup, you know, 
pass it around. That's what it's like if you've had sex, you know, that uh, like, uh, that was very harmful, I think to, you know, to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the message of course, is that if you have sex outside of marriage, you're broken, you're destroyed, you're worthless. Like what's the point? Um, you know, that those messages I think were pretty, pretty terrible. Um, and you know, I don't, I hate to be too hard on the Eldridges, but, um, I do think the whole like you're a helpless princess who needs a man to save you was not <laughs> not I never resonated with that and always felt like there was something wrong with me because I didn't you know I just okay. I just that wasn't how I viewed myself or the world and um and so that was harmful and a lot of this stuff was and you know like I guess dating goodbye was a lot more harmful to other people yeah. I think because I had that refuge of my home hmm. where I was given messages not of shame or um you know, you know, anything or legalism, but of dignity and worth that like it, it was the antidote for me. So I kind of survived it better than I think a lot of other people who maybe didn't have quite that same support or, um, you know, Hmm. plus being a three, I played (laughs) by all the rules, you know, like Uh, I was, I had to keep my president of the Bible club reputation. And so, um, you know, I actually kind of excelled at all of this, um, Mm. not the best, best way to learn about grace, but, um, Mm you know, it kind of protected me from some of the ramifications of, of those teachings. Um, as far as the good, I want to make sure I actually say something here. Cause I know it wasn't all bad. <laughs> well, you don't have to make it up either. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think obviously the, the example of my parents, but that's like a personal one. That's yeah. not really a cultural thing, but the example of my parents, uh, you know, they, they lived in a marriage that was pretty clearly egalitarian, even though they would probably not call it that. Uh, and you know, they, they mm-hmm. their example of a healthy marriage for me was a good one. Um, I'm trying to think of what was helpful. I also had a youth pastor who was very, uh, grace filled and understood the concept mm-hmm. of grace. Mm-hmm. And so kind of, um, I don't know, he, yeah, I would go to other churches and have to do this signing the purity pledges and spit yeah. in the cup and all that kind of stuff. He yeah, yeah, never yeah. did anything like that. Uh, I mean, hmm. It was just not his thing. He just talked a lot more about grace and he loved the kids who were playing by the rules just as much as he loved the kids who weren't like, you know, he kind of made space. So I think youth group culture, how's this youth group culture, which is not the same now from what I understand, uh, it's not as prolific and, you know, we don't have this entire subculture and there's some good things and some bad things about that. But actually that family, uh, which Mm -hmm. for me, because I had a decent youth leader, was actually pretty healthy and pretty functioning. Yeah. Uh, was very formative in my life and very yeah. important for my sense of belonging and being loved. And uh, and so, you know, when I see people who don't have that anymore, um, because youth group culture has changed quite a bit, actually, yeah. um, I do think that that they are missing out. Not everybody's youth group experience was that good. I mean, sure. yeah. a lot of times when you're talking to people who have been severely damaged by evangelical culture, like nine times out of 10, it depends on how their youth group experience was. Uh, what was it oh, like yeah, for you to yeah. be a teenager in church? You know, and for me, it was mm-hmm. actually pretty good. And so uh, I'm super, super thankful for that. I'm still in touch with my youth leader, actually. He and I oh, are hard and fast friends like and will be forever yeah that youth leader was pretty important to me so i would say that that was like a positive thing yeah you know i mean i that's that's back to me thinking i mean of any of these things whether it's all the failures of evangelicalism and i go but i wouldn't know jesus without it um yep and the same goes and this is the the this will be the scandalous thing i'll say uh my grandparents uh 
we're both Texans. Um, I was born in Texas, Texas, Texas. That's boy, very so scandalous. That's right. Um, no, that's not the scandalous <laughs> part. But I'm pretty sure. So my granddad was born in like 1908, I think, 1905, um, was a, a Texas lawman and rancher. So like, if you, you know, think of uh, uh, what's the Chuck Norris um, show, <laughs> uh, Walker, Texas Ranger, right? That's the vision of my granddad I've got in my mind. And I'm pretty positive um, that they were racist. Yeah, I mean the yeah. things that I heard them say. Th- now there there were far worse, right? In in in, in the South and you know the turn of the century, but they certainly were. And I think I don't believe there was a single white person in that area that wasn't at right. the time. Yeah. And and yeah. I am deeply saddened by that, and yeah. and think about that in tragic ways. And I think God was was profoundly sorrowful over that. And yet, if it weren't for my grandparents, I would not know Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I'd say it's been a, I continue to struggle with that of what we've inherited and what we expect of the past that preceded us and um, and how we judge it now, sort of in retrospect. And um, so for me, it's it's not necessarily I'm not trying to push you to say, oh, come up with something good, um, but more to say, how do we reclaim it in a way that's constructive? And maybe it oh, simply yeah. is that sort of notion of personal discipleship where you have a good leader, um, you have a good family. There's a, there's an argument for the nuclear family right there. Right. I mean, right. That, <laughs> but that, that's a healthy part of the evangelical subculture that um, we should, we should really advocate for in some ways while acknowledging there's still all this messaging that happens somehow um, yeah. that affects us. Yeah. And, I mean, so much that, that makes me think of when I was writing searching for Sunday, which is where I talk about the church plant yeah. fail and a lot of other things. The task with that book was I wanted to write about my experience with church. And the the task was to write about evangelicalism and my evangelical upbringing in a way that was truthful, including the hard stuff, yeah. um, but that wasn't cynical, um, yeah. that was truthful in the sense that it isn't just a bad story, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. uh, and so the, one of the hardest things was, and one of actually the most healing parts of writing that book was just, and you might've experienced this a little bit too, just how you kind of write your way to, um, understanding your own self better, you know, was just writing my way through that experience and, and just, you know, kind of taking off my shoes uh, when I arrived at that moments that were clearly, uh, moments of grace and goodness, Mm, even in the midst of some teachings and some ideas that I'm deeply critical and about, and that I think do quite a bit of harm. Uh, but that's just, that, that's the thing that, and I think a gift that writers actually bring <laughs> is that like, that's our job yeah. you know, is to tell the truth, yeah. uh, and tell the truth in all of its, its surprising shades. Yeah. Uh, and there's some really, yeah, there's some really beautiful things that I'm, I mean, you know, evangelicals were the first people to call me a beloved child of God. Mm-hmm. They were the people to baptize me. Um, that counts for something. Yeah. Um, and I think you probably feel this way too. I could definitely sense this in your book. That's why we write the criticisms we do. Yeah. It's yeah. actually out of love. Yeah. It's out of a deep and yeah. abiding love for Christ and his church. Um, I mean, usually sometimes it's just to be an ass on Twitter, but most of the time <laughs> it's, it's out of a deep love of, of this community. And if we didn't love it, if we didn't care about it, we wouldn't challenge it in this way. You know, like we wouldn't want to see it better. We would just gripe about it, become cynical 
and dust, you know, shake the dust off our shoes. But like, I still actually care, even though I'm probably not even technically an evangelical (laughs) anymore. I, I, you know, I care about that community. And I mean, I think it's really clear in your book too, because as I was reading your book, I kept thinking, like, oh, I really hope that this is well received by <laughs> even in the, yeah. you know, we have some points of disagreement. Sure. But even as that I was reading, it, it was like, I hope this is well received because this is such a message that uh, that culture needs to hear about what it says implicitly yeah. and sometimes explicitly about singleness and marriage and how that can harm people and how um, how it can do better. Like all these criticisms that we offer, I mean, I, they really are coming from a place of love and. Mm. Um, I hope that shows through in my work. I know it doesn't always oh, yeah. on my social media, but <laughs> I hope it at least shows through on my work. And it certainly shows through on, in yours. Well, it's a good segue to the last question I have for you. And and that is, you know, we've talked a lot about what we've inherited, um, the sort of stories, the the visions of, of whether it's what the Bible is or then what the Bible says about specifically something like marriage or singleness. So now you've got... Um, kiddos and you've got another kiddo about to be here in the world. Um, what would be the story you would want to tell them about marriage, um, about what the Bible <laughs> says about marriage, or even just what the Bible says in terms of how it, it might shape their life? Right. Man, I, the short answer is like parenting is freaking taking it one day at a time. <laughs> like, That's biblical. I'm just trying to figure out what do I need to tell him to make him eat his vegetables? Uh-huh, like uh-huh. That, is, that is what I'm thinking about right now. Um, uh, definitely is a day at a time thing. Like yeah. I thought, I thought going into parenthood that I was going to be this parent who took every moment to like talk about things and mm. <laughs> it's just mm. like survival. But, mm-hmm. um, but I do think like a lot of those conversations happen and I'm sure you've experienced this with three daughters happens kind of organically, like you're in the car and you're talking or, you know, you just, it kind of jumps up at you. You don't have a lot of time to prepare. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think one thing I just want to make sure I always communicate to him is you here, this is a great example of like the exact problem that you talk about in in your book is a lot of times when I'm at baby showers, Hmm. people or something like that. People will say, Oh my gosh, your boys too, my girls too. Maybe they'll grow up and get married. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I used to be like, yeah. And now I'm like the weirdo who's like, <laughs> well, maybe they won't get married at all. <laughs> or maybe, and here we might disagree on this, or maybe my little boy will yep. marry her little boy. <laughs> I'm like the crazy liberal in the group. And by the end, everybody's like, what? Uh, so I think, I think the most important thing I can do for him and for this little girl on the way is to hopefully model for them a, a marriage that's uh, sacrificial and loving that has humor in it and that um you know that that gets through hard times uh with faithfulness and grace um but then also i I hope that in our circle of friends and in our broader community they're also seeing marriages that don't look exactly like ours Mm -hmm. um and then people who don't look exactly like us and relationships that don't look exactly like us i hope that they have significant influences in their lives uh, from people who are single, um, from people, you know, perhaps in same sex marriages or relationships and uh, just people whose whose marriages and lives and um, callings look different than their own families, uh, which I think will help give them permission uh, later on to um, to be who God calls them to be, uh, even if that falls outside of the quote unquote norm um, yeah, I, I can't think of, you can say a lot to kids uh, and affirm them a lot and say, 
uh, you know, I hope that you follow Christ wherever that leads and whether that leads to marriage or to singleness, um, you know, we have your back. You can say that, but if they see it modeled in their community, I think that that's an, that'll make an even more lasting impression. So that's something I hope to be deliberate about because um, you kind of have to be. We tend to, you know, segregate into married couples and singles and church doesn't help with this. But um, yeah, so hopefully that we're creating a community for them where they can see a variety of futures for people who want to follow Jesus. You recall the music you cried, oh, do you? Thanks again to my special guest, Rachel Held Evans. Check out her newest book, Inspired, or follow her on social media at Rachel Held Evans on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And thanks once again today, Salah Thompson, for providing us with such great music. Hoping there would be a return from empty to whole. The great divide